to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Fire Hall Center, Art Center in what is now called Downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, Fire Hall Artistic Producer, and since March 16th, all live performing art centers, galleries, rehearsal, and dance studios have been closed, with only recently some galleries and museums being allowed to open and classes to be offered to the public and dance studios. So indeed, within the arts, there has been a long, dramatic pause that is affecting the livelihoods of countless number of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs, and affecting the lives of countless audience members and patrons who enjoy and believe strongly in the value of the arts and live performance. During this period, I've been having conversations with artists and arts makers about how our city, our country, and indeed the world is being affected by this. And in these conversations, we sometimes wander all over the map. So my guest today by Zoom is artist, photographer, longtime arts advocate, friend, neighbor, artistic and executive director of the East Side Crawl, Esther Rosenberg. Hi, Esther, and welcome to Dramatic Pause. Hi, Donna. I'm ha really happy to be here. Um, I love the title of the program and really uh, thankful that you're undertaking this and having these conversations. So how are you doing during this COVID-19 time? What have you been up to? <laughs> I've been actually pretty, pretty busy. Uh, it's been a bumpy road. There's no question about that. Um, I guess there's different, uh, because I carry many hats. Uh, I have been on Zoom probably, you know, eight to 10 hours every single day. So oh I'm, my. I'm definitely Zoomed out. As you know, many arts organizations uh, are in crisis um, situations. And uh, so because I, I have my work with the Eastside Culture Crawl Society, and then I'm also on the board of the Vancouver Art Gallery and Emily Carr, and all of those organizations have been uh, gravely um, impacted uh, financially. Um, many, you know, as you know, many arts organizations have had to cancel their, their programming, including yourself, um, with the wonderful Dancing on the Edge Festival that we all look forward to every summer. So, yeah it's been a bit bumpy I have to say it's been very stressful I feel that now that we're in early June and some of the we're in phase two hopefully moving into phase three uh, that we'll get back to some sense of normalcy so let's just take a step back and we'll come back to this I'm just curious um, if we can talk about how Let's start at the beginning. So the beginning of when I first met you. And I believe we actually shared a typewriter <laughs> in, oh, <no. laughs> in a small office in the downtown, what is now, it is now kind of called, a, it's kind of our tech uh, drop-off area, yeah. <laughs> wing, uh, stage, uh, stage right, upstage right. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, I think, when we first started. And I also want to talk a bit about how we got into working on Dancing on the Edge, and then we'll move forward. Right. And I believe at the time you were pregnant and you also had your twins. Um, and yes, we were working down in that, what I guess is your technical loading bay now. <laughs> Yes, you did share that typewriter. Some people might not know what a typewriter is, but um, I, I believe it had an, a, a, a race feature to it, which was really advanced for the time. <laughs> yes, it had an erase feature. It also had the capacity to actually memorize, I think, about 
three, two sentences or something. So we could type in two sentences and then we could push repeat and it would repeat. And that was one of the ways we ended up creating some of our flyers. (laughs) (laughs) So that did happen. It did happen. The good old days for sure. (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) So I think at that point you were working for Terminal City Dance, which has now become Vancouver Moving Theater. And then you sillily enough agreed to come and work for the fire hall uh and through that period i think at some point you i think it was you that actually came up with the brilliant idea to do this dance festival that has now become dancing on the edge which we will be doing in uh two weeks so uh do you have anything you want to share about that time well it, it was an interesting time i believe it was 1986 so i had been uh, uh, working with what was Terminal City Dance that, that then morphed into what is now Vancouver Moving Theatre and then Karen Jameson Dance. Um, so the two um, companies uh, formed after Terminal City uh, stopped, stopped functioning. So I went on to manage uh, Vancouver Moving Theatre. And uh, yes, and then in 1986, uh, you asked me to come along and do some uh, work for the fire hall. Um, and uh, yeah, did come up with, a, I believe I applied for an exploration grant. And um, that was from Canada Council. And that was, the, that was the beginning of what has become the Dancing on the Edge Festival. And in that very first festival, I tell this people who are tell us to people who are quite awed by it. I think there were 97 different artists in it. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. How did we do that? What a, what a programming scheduling nightmare. <laughs> oh, see what youth does. You, you, you just believe you can do anything and, and you do, you accomplish so much. And at that time, I think also we were trying to do mixed programs. So one might be one night, one person might be on a program with one person and the next night they might be on a program with another person. Anyway, it was a crazy time, but it certainly led to something that has become kind of a a Vancouver institution, a Canadian institution, the longest uh, contemporary dance festival running in Canada. And you contributed to that. So there you go. But congratulations to you for continuing on and strengthening it and developing it into, you know, the festival that it is today. So that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And for you, how did you, what, when did you decide that you were actually going to be in the arts? Like how, when I first met you, you were already doing arts administration, arts advocacy, you were all doing all sorts of things at that point. But when did you go, okay, I'm going to be in the arts or did you fall into being in the arts? Well, I think it was kind of a combination of both. I would say growing up, I'm first generation um, from an immigrant family. English is not my first language. Um, As with most immigrant families, I don't think that they want their children to be in the arts. They don't even understand what that might be and what a career in that field would look like. So it's more about my dad kept encouraging me to go into computers, computers. My dad was very kind of advanced in terms of um, being able to project into the future. So he kept saying, you know, there's a future in computers, not plastics, but in computers. (laughs) 
Wow, um, you should have listened to your dad. You could have been Elon I, Musk or somebody. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and anyway, clearly, like most kids, they don't listen to their parents. And, and I did not. So I did go off to, to university and I landed in the communications department at Simon Fraser University. And it was there that um, I got first really exposed to both contemporary dance. I studied um, uh, sound, sound uh, theory with uh, Barry Truax, who's incredibly well known in that particular field. So I did a lot of classes with him. I did video courses. I did contemporary dance classes with Iris Garland. Um, so that was kind of my first foray into the arts. Really had very little experience before then. And the other thing that happened to me that I think is really um, of note in terms of uh, getting connected to the arts was actually going to the coach and seeing um, uh, Strathcona Park, which is a work by Paula Ross Dance Company. And yeah, and when I saw wow. that, when I saw that piece, I was absolutely blown away. I could not, I, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I was just so taken with it. I was so moved by it. It just had this, you know, lasting and profound um, impact in, 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 you know, kind of changing the direction of, 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 of my life. I was just so moved by that. And from there, I, of course, got my degree in communications, which is relatively useless um, in terms of getting a job. I was just going to say, for those who don't know, Paula Ross was one of the first um, contemporary uh, dance choreo contemporary choreographers, modern choreographers, modern dance choreographers in Vancouver, and used to run a studio down on Broadway and did some very. And I don't know where Paula is. I bless your heart, Paula, wherever you are. Um, but she uh, was sort of the forerunner of contemporary and modern dance in Vancouver. She really was. So cool. that project you talked about would have been very powerful. It was, it was, it was incredible. And then from there, because I graduated in 82 and 1983, we had kind of a, a an economic uh, crisis collapse in the economy where interest rates went up to 18, 20%. Housing prices were going up. I don't know if you recall that, Donna, but um, there I was with my newly minted uh, degree thinking, you know, I had done what my parents wanted me to do. At least I got a degree, um, a grad, you know, a, a graduate degree and uh, or post-secondary degree. And, and I thought, oh, the whole world was going to open up for me. And, and cause I had this piece of paper well uh that year i must have applied for 500 jobs and nobody called me back now i was not somebody who didn't have any work experience because i would had a lot of it at that age just because of my circumstances but anyway i'd been a community development worker i had worked for cibc for a couple of years so i had like lots of different um you know work experience so somebody should have looked at me but nobody was hiring and so that leads me to the sort of the uh, a, a very peculiar and interesting connection in the arts, which is with La Ratatouille Theatre. 
And right. yeah, and La Ratatouille Theater was again, you know, um, way beyond, you know, the, 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 the times. I mean, just really at the forefront of bringing, you know, clown, European stage clown uh, into Vancouver. And of course, you know, BC at that time, they were pretty traditional in terms of their funding. Uh, they really didn't want to support uh, clown because they just saw them as, you know, waving balloons and circus clowns. Ha <laughs> ha, circus, we'll get to that, and Cirque du Soleil and all of that. But anyway, they, they, they definitely were not supportive of clowns. And so we had a pretty hard slog of, of uh, promoting them. Michelle Dallaire, who unfortunately passed away, um, about a year ago, um, amazing, amazing artistic uh, director and visionary, Gerardo Vila, uh, James Keelon, uh, Doug Vernon, and of course, uh, Gina Bastoni. Bastoni. So yeah, really an incredible ensemble of, 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 of talent right there. And um, so we, we didn't have a whole lot of success here. And, um, and then we were contacted by, and we had met Guy La Liberté, who went on to form Cirque du Soleil. And Guy La Liberté was a, you know, a street performer. He was a, a fire eater and that was his shtick. Um, and he had this brilliant idea to form Cirque de, what, what, has, what became Cirque du Soleil in a billion dollar you know, industry. Um, and so one of the first groups, of course, that they, that they booked, uh, or that I booked, um, uh, with, uh, uh, Cirque du Soleil was La Ratatouille Theatre. So that was back in, I think 83 or 84 is when he started. I might get those dates just a little bit wrong, but some, somewhere in there. And, uh, no, so I think a, that's correct. Yeah. Cause I yeah. remember that time it was a recession. I mean, fire hall started mm -hmm. in a recession, silly time for to start a theater company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or an art center, really. But anyway, yes, please go on, because Gina Bastoni is now back living on the West Coast, I believe. Yeah, she yeah. is, and happy to have her back here. Um, wow, what what humor. I mean, uh, these nobody can make me laugh, even today, um, the, the, the way that La Ratatouille Theatre did. Um, just incredible, incredible work. But so, yeah, they went on to be sort of the, the, the main act in, you know, what became Cirque du Soleil. And so for the next couple of years, I, I booked them into that, which was like a great contract, even though in those days, you know, the money was much better than what anybody else was making in the arts. But it was a pretty rough go because, you know, it's a very physical um, uh, company and uh, performance. And people had to perform anywhere from six to eight shows a week. So that definitely took a, took a toll on people. The conditions were a bit rougher than what they get now. I think they stay in better hotels. In those days, it was kind of like a motel, um, often camping in the van, you know, those kinds of things. That's how, you know, arts organizations get started. But uh, look, at where it, look at where it went to. And uh, so many of many of my clowns, I call them my clowns, um, we did work as a collective, uh, went off to continue performing with Cirque du Soleil and then they broke away as a, as, as a group and each started to kind of pursue their, their own particular um, art practice. And when did you as an artist start being an artist? Well, I mean, really, you've been an artist all your life. What you do is, I mean, I think, I think people forget that people that work in the arts, regardless of whether they're on stage or uh, in their studio, are quite are, are, are artists, even if 
even if they're functioning in an administrative role as you have, because you've crossed back and forth. And I'm sure those clowns (laughs) influence that a bit. And I say clowns in quotation marks because they were truly very talented people. And you can tell by looking at where Cirque du Soleil ended up going was that they had huge influence on that, that their ideas influenced that, I'm sure. Absolutely. There's no question. There's no question about that. But for myself, I guess there was always, I, you know, I just felt as a kid, I was a little bit different. And I think all artists sort of feel that way. Um, they're not sort of like the others. One is not like the other. <laughs> and I was the black sheep in the family. Um, and um, I just kept kind of wanting to pursue something different for, for, for my life. I did when I was in high school, I had some challenges and I went into an alternative program. Um, And I think it was that particular program that really kind of encouraged me to to kind of believe in myself and to just follow whatever it is that that I wanted to pursue. So I ended up in in a darkroom class um, and started my black and white photography back then. Unfortunately, because of the financial circumstances and the recession and all of that, I wasn't really able to continue with my photographic pursuits at that time because we had to make a living and we had to survive and we wanted to survive in the arts world. And so arts administration, management, um, developing, you know, new programs, all of those things were a way to keep connected in the arts, be creative in terms of developing uh, programming. Um, And so I would say for a a very long period of time, I put aside my own um, creative uh, pursuits. Uh, which, of course, I've gone back to over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but there was a, a certainly, uh, you know, a good 15 years where I didn't really pursue that because of, of financial considerations. Well, I'm glad you did. I have one of your uh, prints in my office that I look yeah. at every day because it gives me, uh, it makes, reminds me to stop and think. Um, but I'm also uh, really interested and intrigued by your passion for this neighborhood. You live in Strathcona, and ever since I've met you, I think you've lived in Strathcona, and you've had a huge impact on on things that have gone on there. Um, but w- how did that happen? Why did you end up in Strathcona? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love the neighborhood. I think it's a fabulous neighborhood, and it's a great secret that yeah. neighborhood. <laughs> Well, not so much a secret anymore, but... No, no, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. I would say, well, first of all, I grew up on the 2200 block Pender, which is near Hastings and Nanaimo. So I'm not really far from home. I spent a lot of my teenage years hanging out in Strathcona uh, with some pretty interesting characters in my teens. (laughs) I guess that's how we phrase that now, sort of interesting characters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that. I no. think we've gone into that before, but we won't go into that again. <laughs> yeah, but there's also, believe it or not, there's there was a there's a photo connection there as well because there's a house literally down from where I live near Georgia in in Hawks Avenue, where um, the owner had three houses on this lot, and he rented out the upstairs of one of these houses to the Gibbs Boys and Girls Club, which I don't really know that much about. But they did have a dark room in this house and and provided photographic um, or photography classes. So I actually came down to this neighborhood, not only to perhaps imbibe in some things that I shouldn't have been doing, but also... 
Yes, but, those were the days. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> Uh, but but also to take these these photographic uh, uh, classes um, in this house, which is kind of a bit peculiar, but that's what was happening. So when I was completing my my degree at SFU, I had a, uh, one of the one of my friends in in that department had uh, was living in Strathcona. And she had met some famous folk musician at the folk festival. And she had decided she was going to go off with him and travel, you know, the States <laughs> with him. And she asked me if I wanted to take on her apartment. And that was in 19, that was in 1980. Um, and I looked at this, you know, somewhat dilapidated building, a three-story walk up. And I went, yes, I do want to live here. And so I sublet the apartment from her. She didn't totally let it go, but eventually she did. But an interesting story about that was a couple of years later, I had an opportunity to move into a house in the West End. And so I actually gave, I was about to give up my apartment. And then I had this, this epiphany. Um, and I realized that I could not leave this space. I could not leave this. So I had to reverse um, all of the things that I had done to, I found somebody to move into my apartment. I was now moving into this house and I had to reverse all of that. I, I, really, I couldn't leave this apartment building. Uh, subsequently in 1986, at the same time that, you know, I'm now working for the Fire Hall Art Center and I have a paycheck, <laughs> a real paycheck. <laughs> So exciting! It's too big, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea, and um, it 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 allowed us. We were being evicted from this apartment building, and of course, I fought the eviction. You you know, I'm a bit of a kind of fighter that way, and uh, that's a long story, and I'm not going to go into it because it's pretty. Yeah, it's but the long and short of it is that um, because I had a steady job now. Um, I could, uh, we, we, we fought the eviction and I was able to organize a, a group of people to purchase the apartment building, which we still own and live in today. And you share with your partner, Richard Tetro, who I do. the other part of the we, right? That is correct. Yeah. Richard's <laughs> a muralist printmaker and, and painter. Hi, Richard, <laughs> if you're in the background. <laughs> Okay, so let's move from that. You've got the the you've got the place to live now. You're still working at the fire hall, and then a group of artists, probably involving Richard, start the East Side Crawl. Yeah, so <laughs> we do. <laughs> so I guess you know what happens in the early '90s. You know these these economic um, you know uh, ups and downs continuously have, have happened clearly over, you know, our lifetime over the last 40, 45 years. And of course, in the 90s, there were, you know, more, more of these, perhaps not as bad as the recession in 83, but there were some bumpy, bumpy, there were some bumps in the road there. And I think that 
for visual artists, we began to realize that there were limited opportunities. Uh, there was the Granville Street row of art galleries and some people were in and some people weren't. Uh, my partner Richard did have a representation in a couple of those galleries over those years. And then I think a lot of the galleries really started to kind of shift. Uh, they weren't representing kind of a mix of artists. They started to kind of focus in on some were doing minimalist artists, some were doing abstract artists, some were just, so they, they really started to hone in and kind of uh, look at um, um, a, a, a group of artists that pretty much represented a particular style. And so the opportunities for, particularly for figurative artists, which was uh, Richard, uh, really just wasn't there. There was the Jacqueline M Gallery that started up on, on Beatty Street and they did. Their focus was actually figurative artists. But it was also a time when I believe that our art critic who I you know really appreciate, Robin Lawrence, who works for the Georgia Strait, I hope still, but I don't know, <laughs> given where right. the straight is gone. <laughs> They're moving out of the arts into lifestyle, I hear. Yes, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, she declared, like other art critics at that time, that painting was dead, um, which <laughs> I know <laughs> as a medium. Oh, and okay. And so that really started to kind of restrict the opportunities for, for artists as well. And uh, we had, like I had coordinated the, uh, our apartment building more as a co-op slash collective in terms of the purchase of that building, we now had found a studio in Strathcona, which is around the corner from where we live. And I found this building that I coordinated as well. It's called Panificial Studios and it's on Hawks and, and Kiefer. So and was that I, building, Esther, was that building where Venice Bakery, wasn't there a bakery in there? What was in that building before prior uh, to you buying it? Yeah, there was a bakery, but it wasn't Venice uh, Bakery. It was an Italian, it was an Italian bakery, which name for some reason doesn't come to me. Uh, we called it Panificio, which is really fine bread in Italian. <laughs> We thought that was appropriate. Cool yeah, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, we, you know, I pulled together a group of artists and we, we, we bought this building and converted it, you know, into an artist live work studio space. We didn't live there. We just had had our studio there. Uh, I just so want to throw in one thing and we won't go off too far on it, but uh, one of the people that ended up being a purchaser in that building was someone that you met here who was in charge of actually building the first fire hall courtyard decks and replacing the fence and this that project was all done through a employment in insurance grant of some kind so we had like 12 people who had come off unemployment who were working on this who weren't necessarily carpenters led by Arn Arnson. <laughs> so it was... <laughs> Those were the days where you could do things that nobody really paid much attention to, but you did them as safely and as secretly as you could, and you got it done. But anyway, that's, I think, I just wanted to add that in, because that's another fire hall history piece that everybody goes, well, how did this happen? And I think at the same time, Richard did a mural for us, the first yes. mural. Yeah, all of those things happened in 19, in 19, well, that happened in 1986, and yes, yeah. the art art piece is definitely, you know, how, that's definitely how we met. And yes, he, he had to manage, uh, you know, I would say a collection of some very interesting 
personalities. Yes, at the time. <laughs> and every, I, I will just add this on, is every once in a while, someone will send me an email or let me know that, oh, by the way, I worked on that project. And I have to go back in my memory and remember who that person is. And, and it usually comes back and they're always sort of very thankful that we sort of help them get some experience and a leg up. And, and those decks stood for a long time before they had to be replaced. Well, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, it, it really is um, that they still keep in touch. And yeah, it was the decks. And I believe um, putting in the uh, exhibit space that you currently have, um, the lighting and all of those things, I think revamping the, the, the lobby was also part of that project. Yes, it was, because it was all covered by some really boring blue plaster that we took all that plaster off and it became the brick and the yes. plaster that awful blue plaster unfortunately is still on the roof or still on the ceiling but anyway oh. <laughs> moving on back <laughs> to, moving back on. To, so, back to the new gallery space or the new studio space that you yeah. created <laughs> so we got that in 92 or 93 and we decided that what we would do is just have you know an open studio event and actually they were fundraisers. They were not about us. We, we, we didn't open it up in terms of, you know, thinking about sales. I know that sounds kind of weird, um, but really we, we thought that we could use this building um, as an opportunity to raise funds for individual artists who were in need. Um, or individual persons who were in need. So the first year that, that we opened up our studio, this is pre-crawl before we, we got together with the other buildings. And this is before we called it the crawl, which by the way, Richard came up with that name, Culture Crawl. Um, <laughs> but um, I know there's this other side to Richard. <laughs> well, brilliant. we'll have to have Richard on and we'll find out. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Anyway, so the, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, the, you were talking about yes. the fundraising and the early stages of how you got to the crawl. Right. So, so the that. first year we actually, we opened up the entire building and we had all of our art out there. And, and basically we, we had um, people paid for a raffle and we gave away our art whoever, you know, like it was, it was raffled off and we raised money the first year for people who had been, um, um, uh, protesting at Clackwood Sound and had been arrested. Uh, there were a number of people from Vancouver, uh, who had gone over to Vancouver Island. And of course, because they had been arrested in that jurisdiction, they had to go there for their court dates which was expensive because they had to pay for the ferry to get over there, often have to rent a motel or hotel room for a couple of days until their hearing happened, those kinds of things. So I believe we, we assisted six different groups of people uh, with their financial needs in order for them to be able to attend their court hearings. That was year one. The second year, as you know, terrible times in the 90s when we started with the AIDS epidemic, uh, pandemic. Um, and as, as all of us, you know, specifically in the arts, we, we were, you know, gravely impacted by that. And we had, you know, me many members of our community um, that had contracted AIDS and, and we have lost many, many people that we, that we love. Um, so in those days, there was 
because there wasn't any kind of, you know, medicine or cure, or real, real treatment, there were a lot of people who wanted to, well, who had different needs, um, and they were challenged financially. Uh, some people needed money to buy vitamins because some people thought that, you know, if they took a lot of vitamin C and B and really strengthened their immune system, that this would help them. Um, so there were a lot of, you know, costs associated with their medical um, needs. So well, our there, was tremendous, there was also tremendous prejudice about uh, towards those people who contracted AIDS. There was there was that. So there wasn't quite the same burning desire that uh, and I don't I don't mean burning desire for in a in a positive way, but there wasn't that same kind of passion to address this and, and actually solve it in the way that there is with COVID-19 because people went, it's not my disease. It's, it's the, the gay, they were, their homophobia arose. And so it was pushed off to the side for a long time before anybody actually moved on this, um, except for the Dr. Peter Center, of course, and yeah. people like yourselves who started to raise money to help. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right, you know, about that. The, the homophobia was just, you know, was, was everybody, everywhere and, and people were dying. Um, so what we did was that year, um, we dedicated all of the funds that, that we raised. We, um, towards, we supported five individuals. Uh, one person, we bought a TV for him because he didn't have a television set. Um, somebody we paid, I can't remember. It was like, you know, it, it wasn't like a huge amount. It was a huge amount of money for, for, you know, to fundraise. But I think we, we gave somebody $500 for vitamins, you know, those kinds of things. Just, it, it wasn't going to take care of all their financial problems, but it was going to help in some, what we thought in some small way to make their lives a little bit better, a little bit better. So we supported about five individuals, mostly artists um, um, who were having the, 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 the health issues. And then the third um, fundraiser that we did was that across the alley from the Panificio Studios, there was a group of musicians um, and an arsonist has started a fire. And so a lot of their, their equipment, um, uh, they lost a lot of their equipment. Uh, we opened up our studio and the, uh, our studio to um, allow them to store the equipment that did survive the fire. And then we raised funds for them to be, because of course they didn't have insurance, um, uh, who can afford that? And uh, so we did a fundraiser to assist them to move on to different places. And we stored their equipment for months on end until they found a suitable place. And uh, so they were able to buy some equipment and, 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 and move elsewhere. So those were the kind of the things that we started to do pre-crawl. Pre and then in the fourth year, what I call the fourth year for us, Panificio Studios, we uh, connected with Parker Street and uh, the Glass Onion, who were all doing kind of a, a winter Christmas show, you could say, in respect to opening up studios. And so we got together as a little group and said, hey, why don't we all kind of work together? And um, hence, 24 years later, here we are um, in COVID land, but <laughs> still moving forward. Uh, with the with the the culture crawl, but it started with just a couple of buildings and a handful of artists, and has um, built from there. Well, and Parker Street has uh, we refer to it. Uh, well, how many studios are there actually in Parker Street? Pa Parker well, Street is this amazing building. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Anyway, I know there are a lot of studios at Park. We, we would all like to know. Um, what we do know is there's approximately <laughs> could be 170 to 200 artists um, at any given time. Uh, generally, with the Culture Crawl, we have about 150 to 160 artists that from that particular uh, building are participating. So um, it's a it's a great you know it's a great building and it's um, wonderful to have them as part of the Culture Crawl. So so 24 years 24 years later, how many studios and in, were involved last year in the crawl? Well, we had 500 artists participating, so about 500 right. 500 studios. Um, we're we're seeing uh, we're we're seeing a decline in studios uh, because of how oh, Kel surprise Vancouver's real estate <laughs> and, I, favorite topic. and I, I recall in, um, uh, the creation of an organization way back when I think it was called ACE. I'm going I might be wrong about that, but I remember that this was the, the beginning as I kind of recall was, uh, when railway street, some of the studios on railway street started to close and be taken over. Then there was this impetus to keep create artists live work space in condos. And then the whole thing about what actually is an artist came into discussion, which is continues on. But, um, I, I know that just most recently, uh, one of the studios that was part of Crawl, William William Clark, I think I've got that name right, on Clark Street, has uh, decided that they are going to have this, they're, they're taking taking back the studios from the, the artists that were there. So uh, you're right. I mean, obviously, Strathcona got discovered, East Side got discovered, and the realtors have kind of moved in and started to change things. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, I guess that leads me to is there a mechanism well maybe we'll get to that when we talk about one of the other subjects i wanted to talk to you about but i i'm curious about what you think will be able to be possible during covid19 east side culture crawl and how many studios will be or will not be able to participate and I guess also we're probably going to talk about how this loss of studios is going to impact the visual arts community overall. But so there you go. Go dive in with whatever you want to say there. Okay. Well, yes, ACE, you know, another one of our <laughs> kind of organizations that we started. So ACE was um, Artists for Creative Environments, and it came about from uh, us being evicted from Railway Street. So we were in there and had our studio space there at that time, 349 Railway. Uh, so the fire department was, it, those were the days the fire department came in with their axes and they tore down the doors. And it was kind of like, you know, we were, we were, the artists were seen as rats that needed to be kind of, you know, purged from these warehouse buildings. Um, so ACE went on to actually do a number of things, some more successful than, than others. Uh, the reason that the core building exists, which is about 30 artist live work studio space, spaces, um, that is part of the edge complex down in your area, just down the block from the Fire Hall Arts Center, is, is because you know ACE developed that and worked on that. Uh, so that's a positive outcome. We still have a couple of uh, spaces that are artists live work spaces that are rental spaces. Uh, two of them, Railtown Studios, which again, more in your neck of the woods. And then the Arc, which is further down near Victoria and Powell Street in that direction. Um, and so those continue to thrive as an artist live work rental space. And they are committed to having artists there as opposed to kind of 
professionals who want to live a kind of risque party life party life <laughs> unfortunately the the negative outcome um that resulted from the battles that we were having in those days in 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 the 1990s um is that the bureaucrats at the time in terms of cultural services you're going to love this one um basically stated that they we wanted them to uh, develop a policy and zoning for artists live work spaces and they refused to do that and the bureaucrat at the time I don't know if I should mention the name um, essentially said well we can't define artists this was the head of cultural services it's like oh but you're defining and categorizing artists in terms of all the grants that you're giving because you're saying this is an artist and this is an artist and but you can't do that when it comes to the creation spaces or production spaces. So that policy, which morphed into a bonanza for developers because they were able to develop live workspaces. So all of the spaces that you see, the buildings that you see up around second and main, it allowed developers to put in place residential spaces in what was a light industrial zone and clearly not allowed. And allowed them to to do these relatively inexpensive spaces because they didn't actually have to provide the amenities that generally go with residential neighborhoods so this you know all of the infrastructure in terms of like parks and schools and libraries and community centers none of that had to be put in place because it was live workspaces in light industrial areas uh, a lot of people clearly artists moved into the work situation that was close to downtown. Uh, very few, there is one building that still has a number of artists who were able to buy in, but a really faulty, faulty uh, policy um, making at the, at, at, at the time. Certainly we learned from, you know, mistakes of the past and don't want that to, to happen now. So fast forward into, you know, the crawl and artist spaces. We last year uh, produced a survey uh, called A City Without Art, um, um, No Net Loss. Uh, we are really, you know, pushing forward. We were able to find out how much square footage has been lost just within the east side area and just within the visual arts community and not that we were wanting to be you know exclusive here but um it's it's what we know best so we worked with that that sector and it's where we had the most kind of data that we could that we could work from so we realized that in the last 10 years there's been 400,000 square feet of of studio space that's been lost which is which is huge that's amazing. I, I mean, that's just like daunting. <laughs> I mean, where have these artists gone to? Have they relocated out of the city? Yeah, yeah. Um, some have. And we're really trying to fight that because do we want a city without art? We need to have, if, if you want artists exhibiting in galleries, if you want them exhibiting at the VAG, the CAG, the RAG, the BAG, whatever it is, um, private galleries, you need somewhere for them to produce. Some artists have moved out of the city. Uh, unfortunately, I just recently heard that uh, New Westminster, which was sort of developing this, you know, kind of art community nucleus, and a number of artists had moved out there, um, and they developed something called the Braid Street Studios, is um, apparently closing down. 
So I don't know how many artists are there, uh, but that's definitely a blow because there have been a lot of artists who moved out of Vancouver and moved to New West. And I think this, a lot of this happens because people don't see that there's a generation of any kind of economic benefit, if you will, from, from what an artist is doing in their studio. So I'd be interested to hear how much financial... I mean, over 50,000, I'm guessing here, but I think about 50,000 people go out to see work during the Eastside Culture Crawl. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been in studios where you can't move and, and, and I shouldn't necessarily be saying that during COVID-19, but they're there to see art and they're there to uh, meet and find out about new artists. So last year or in the last couple of years, you must have had studies done at, at, to what kind of economic impact the crawl has on the city in terms of, of attendance, but also in terms of purchases and value going back to the artist? Yeah, we actually haven't done a whole lot of um, surveying in that respect. Um, partially, it has to do with artists are reluctant to talk about how much was made, even though the surveys that we have attempted to, to send out are very broad. And of course, they're anonymous and, you know, all of those well, things. Well, it's probably also difficult because people meet the artist at the crawl. They may purchase at the crawl, but they also may not. They may just keep that in mind. And when their dollar, when they have the money, contact the artist and buy. But I, I can't imagine that it doesn't have a huge economic benefit to the city. There's no question about it. One of the stats that we do know, um, because a lot of artists have told us this, that generally over the four-day event, they make enough to cover their studio rent for the year. Wow. So it's, you know, that in in and of itself is, you know, worthwhile, clearly. Um, And so you can, we have a range of what people are making. It ranges anywhere from 500,000 to 50,000. Is, is what we've been told with some of these surveys that we, we have been able to undertake. We also know, um, which is you know, kind of interesting, the spinoffs and the benefits that, that happen to both, I mean, now with the brewery district, uh, restaurants, all of those things. And I know every crawl on, on the Saturday evening, because we're so pooped, we always make a reservation in a restaurant and a group of uh, artists go and, and have dinner because we're just really tired. We're not going to make food at home. We just want to chill and <laughs> get through this. And every restaurant that we've gone into over the years has always said, I don't know why we're so busy, but this is the busiest weekend that we have all year. Wow. Wow. And, well, and this is a great... I was going to say, this is a great way to segue into what I really also want you to talk about is the East Van Arts District or give the definition of how you're proceeding forward with that. Sure. So from this survey, uh, we, we concluded, you know, we came up with a number of what we think are, you know, um, directions that can be, that can be undertaken. And you know, I love, I'm passionate about the East Side. I grew up here. I've lived here all my life. This is, this is my home. Um, I've, I've worked and lived here for pretty much my entire life. Well, I have for my entire life. And so I'm very passionate about the, the, the East Side. And, but I'm also, I realized in, in doing, in undertaking this survey, um, that, that there are just, even though I knew this, of course, because I know you exist there, <laughs> You know, it's not like I didn't, but you know, when sometimes you just start to look at things a little bit differently 
And in undertaking this survey, we realized, oh my goodness, this is so rich here. This is so rich culturally and artistically. This neighborhood has it all. You know, it is culturally significant, artistically significant. It has so many arts and cultural assets that we don't see anywhere else in the city. Heritage significant, architecturally insignificant, significant. Yes. You know, you've got Chinatown, you've got Japantown, you've got, um, um, you've got Hogan's Alley. I mean, there's just, everything is here. We've got the Farrah Hall, we've got 312 Main, um, we've got, you know, a little further east, we've got um, um, the, 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 the Colch and the new theater, for some reason, the name is not coming to me. The York. The York, thank the you. York. Uh, yeah, and we've got artist studios. We have a lot of uh, nonprofit arts organizations functioning here. Uh, it and a is, lot of restaurants. Yeah, yeah, it is just, it's such an amazing space. And, and so in looking at that, we, we developed the, we conceptualized um, looking into branding this neighborhood as the Eastside Arts District. And in doing that, of course, the, the scope of that is much broader than visual art artists. It's going to encompass, you know, every arts organization, every cultural institution. So we're gonna be doing um, uh, mapping the entire area. We don't know exactly what those boundaries are going to be. Uh, we're, we've applied for grants. We have a small little planning grant from the city of Vancouver, thank you. And um, so that's gonna allow us to do some, some research into um, looking at different uh, other cities that have arts districts, what is working for them, what isn't, um, what kind of zoning changes do we need to make, taxation, uh, density bonusing, development levies, community amenity contributions, but really kind of focusing in on this particular area and really bringing to the surface and, and, and um, all of the various arts and cultural organizations in this community and profiling them so that somebody comes into town, they should, they should be able to just tap EAD and up will come the Fire Hall Arts Center and what's happening that night. And I think, uh, if I recall, when this, there was a motion passed at City Council, and I may have the date wrong, but I, 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 hope it's, I hope it connects, but I know it was in late February, and I think it might have been February 25th that it went to council, which happens to be the, the opening day that the fire hall did its first performance in 1982, February 25th. So if it wasn't February 25th, I apologize to people, but in my brain, the motion that was passed at council to support the, the research into this, um, into this project was in February. Was that not correct? It is in February. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact date, but I'll check <laughs> on that because clearly it's significant. And I want to ensure that we tie those two pieces together. <laughs> if that is indeed the case. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be that would be great. How wonderful. Um, yes, uh, city council, you know, pre-COVID uh, did pass the motion. And of course, everything's been, you know, kind of put on hold at the moment. Uh, we did get confirmation and we did get the funds uh, for the smaller for the smaller planning um, uh, projects. So we're currently undertaking that. And that's going to happen over the next six to eight months. Uh, we also have put in other applications to other funders and we're quite optimistic that we are going to receive the support for that. 
Um, we'll know that in a couple of weeks time. And if that's the case, then I think we're well on our way to hopefully, um, you know, with a great deal of consultation with all of the stakeholders, we want this to be an arts driven initiative, uh, not necessarily an economic one. That will be a benefit. There's no question about that. But we want this to be driven by the arts and the arts organizations. And so if people listening to this have not uh, are, weren't aware of this and they're artists within the neighborhood or just want to support because they're artists, they, they would reach out to the crawl. Is that, that, is that what they would do? Yes. So yes, absolutely. I'll send them your way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. We do want to talk, we're going to talk to as many people as possible. Uh, some of it will be group, you know, because we can't do individuals with, with, with everybody. Some of it will be group sessions, but we really, we really want this driven by art and artists and arts organizations. Um, and we want that, we want that feedback and cultural, you know, I include cultural groups in that. Um, well, and arts we, philanthropists also, yes, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I, 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 you know, I envision um, this, you know, this part of the city, I, I'd love to see public art all over the place. As you know, we have very few pieces of public art in the community. Um, we have some murals. And then of course we have the great East Van Cross, which is fantastic to have as, as um, you know, a very strong public art piece in the community and, and all the various different, you know, conversations that, that it generates. <laughs> <laughs> which I totally you know, am appreciative of. But I would love to see public art everywhere um, throughout this neighborhood in that people see this as a place that they want to, you know, come to and explore the performing arts and the visual arts and, um, you know, festivals and music, all of it. And, and just to touch back on the COVID experience that we're going through, do you have any thoughts about what you might be able to do with uh, Eastside Culture Crawl this year? Yeah, well, um, we had, you had touched a little bit on, on William Clark uh, Studios. And so, you know, we are uh, unfortunately seeing, you know, situations where it's not the artists who can't afford the studios, it's uh, the leaseholders um, who were unable to meet their financial obligations. And unfortunately, it's the artists um, who, who are being impacted. Uh, by this. So there's, there's a COVID experience that um, we hadn't foreseen. Um, we were, I guess, looking more towards trying to find ways to support independent artists so that they could continue to pay their, pay their rent. Um, but this was not, this was not that situation. And nor was this a situation which we often see in terms of losing artist spaces, where it's a development um, coming in. And so people have to go, the building's going to be torn down. It's neither of those two things. I have to say that the city has come a long way in terms of working with arts organizations. And we have had really strong support from cultural services. And I really appreciate all of the effort they're putting into this particular uh, situation. I am very optimistic and positive that we're going to see uh, a good outcome and the artists are going to be able to stay um, in this space. And so we're not going to lose it. So that is an impact of COVID. And that brings us back to how is the culture crawl going to function? Well, 
I guess like with everybody, we went reeling um, and tumbling all over the place. And financially, uh, the culture crawl receives uh, very little support for that particular event. I know it's big and it's supported by a lot of people, but in terms of government funding, it's really a nominal amount, probably about I don't know, 15%, maybe, yeah, 15% of our budget. So not a lot of government support goes into this particular project that impacts so many artists. So we rely a lot on earned revenue. So sponsorships and artist registration, fundraising, all of those things are critical to the success of the culture crawl. And when this first came down, we went, wow, we're just not gonna get that kind of support. And we really thought, um, early on that we were basically going to just have to close up. And as you know, with every arts organization, we're, we persist, don't we, Donna? <laughs> <laughs> we don't give up. Yeah, <laughs> despite all <laughs> obstacles, <laughs> we don't give up. It's like, okay, you close this door, we're moving on to another door. And, um, and so there was, you know, I'd say a couple of weeks there where I really felt, you know, quite quite depressed about um, what was going to happen. And, and I really started to think about, you know, who we were and what we offer and, you know, 24 years, that's, that's a long history. And I realized we can't let that go. There's no way we can let that go. We want to come back uh, next year, which will be our 25th year. And you know what that's like to celebrate, you know, that those kind of milestones. Um, and we just went, no, we can't, we can't let this happen. So, um, we have gotten some wonderful support from the Vancouver Foundation uh, through their emergency response. And then of course the federal government in terms of wage subsidies. So we're back at things. Um, I think it's gonna be, it, of course it's gonna be a different crawl. We thought we would have to pivot completely to digital. And, um, and then we started to think about it a little bit more and, and went, no, it doesn't just have to be digital. Um, perhaps some of the smaller studios, which can control the number of people more, more easily, they can be open. And then we actually started to broaden that out a bit more. And we went, well, why couldn't Parker Street be open? We can maybe open up two floors and, and have timed um, RSVP openings. And, um, and so we really now are going to offer a combination with some digital features that allow people to come and explore the culture crawl that way. And then also in person, we are probably going to, and we're just working out the logistics of this, we're probably going to extend our dates, uh, which then will allow for more people to see it. Because of course, given the narrow window of only four days, and we know what a crush that is with all the people that attend, and then you have to diminish that capacity by you know, 75%. Um, so we wanna provide other opportunities for people to engage. And we just did a survey to, for both the artists and the public to see how savvy people are technically and digitally and what they think about offering uh, some of this. And it's, it's all been extremely positive, but people do want and stress that they want in-person connection. So, we're moving forward. Uh, we don't know really what's going to happen in November. And if we get a second wave and we go back to lockdown, then of course, that's what we will do. Uh, safety is paramount. 
um, for everybody, for the artists, the public, the organizers, our volunteers. Um, all of the you know precautions will be put in place, and um, we will work with um, you know the guidelines uh, that WorkSafe BC has. And I think that we can, if things continue the way that they're going, offer you know a different kind of crawl. But at the same time, we're still going to be there. We're still, we're not going to be, we're going to be present. We're not going to let go of what we, you know, took 24 years to build. And so we're really actually quite hopeful and optimistic that things are going to be, are going to be good. Not the same, but good. Well, and it seems to me that uh, this is what we've done with Dancing on the Edge. And this is also what we're trying to do with the fire hall is look at uh, what we can learn from this and incorporate that perhaps into future crawls or future fest dancing on the edge festivals or how we do the fire hall, um, how we do work at the fire hall. So do you know the dates yet? We'll just put the November. I know it's November, but it's always the third week in November. So if we were to go by the, you know, last year's model or 23 years of culture, crawl, it's always the third weekend which would bring it November 19th to the 22nd but we are going to expand those dates so it'll probably be the weekend before or maybe the weekend after we're just going to actually start looking at that we don't want to conflict with another arts organization and some of the programming that they might have so um, it's something that we're that we're looking at over the the next week or so uh, we will be expanding the hours and then giving the artists the opportunity in terms of you know, do they want to be open two weekends or not? So we, we can find a way of doing that. But as, as you said, I think that this is bringing up opportunities that perhaps we hadn't kind of envisioned before. And I think, you know, being able to offer, I think this year, let's say a 360 degree view of an artist studio and live streaming and doing artist uh, uh, live chats with artists, I think we'll broaden our audience base because it can happen from anywhere in the world. And the crawl is, as you know, has to, you have to be here really to participate, which is great and we love that. And there's nothing better than in person. But at the same time, we see, you know, there are some pluses here in terms of the, the, the digital features that we're going to provide. I think that sounds really exciting. I, I have to say, I'm really, really thrilled to hear this because I, the crawl has become a Vancouver institution and I was speaking to someone else who was talking about the loss of the folk festival and for this year and I, I basically I, I feel that these are the things the crawl and the folk festival and all the arts in this in this city that goes on everybody says there isn't a lot but there's so much is really what creates the the, the excitement around Vancouver the vitality here so I'm gonna have to wrap this up soon as um, but I wanted to say um, I have a question that I ask most people. If you could do anything that you wanted and money was not an issue, what would you do artistically? Well, <laughs> you mean in terms of my own personal? Whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's so many things. I do have actually, um, I'm, I, I work, I've, I've developed a public art piece uh, with another um, artist, Jeanette Lee. And the piece is called Here, H-E-R-E. And it's a mammoth piece. And it's, you know, if, if we were to execute it, it's a pretty expensive piece. Um, what I love about the piece is that it resonates in terms of, it's, it's about this 
community, clearly, because everything I do is about this community. And um, it's about here, he, it, where I want it located is just off of where the viaducts are going to come down. Um, symbolically, it's about here there was these communities, um, here there is, and here there will be, um, continue to be these communities. And so it is the actual word, H-E-R-E, -E, um, and then on, on those letters are um, uh, photographs that we have sourced out from all of the different um, and uh, ethnic and diverse communities that have inhabited this part of Vancouver. As you know, um, that particular area is so charged with all kinds of, you know, history. The terminus was there and that's where people came into the city. And one of the first places that they went to was the, was the east side. And so this is so rich historically and it's so rich currently and it will continue to be rich. And I think the EAD will add to that and promote that and ensure that it continues, that richness, artistic and cultural richness continues. And I think this piece can stand as a symbolically um, and represent that, you know, what was there, what is there now and what will continue to be. So I would love to see this piece realized. It does actually, the letters do sit on railway spikes um and uh which kind of become you know benches and so you can look at the piece um you know by by just kind of you know sitting down and you can see the the different sides to it anyway i'm really excited about it it's one thing that i kind of you know uh I, we keep going back to every every so often and then move it forward a little bit um we do have a maquette um, and I do hope to advance it that much uh, further because I think it does, um, you know, capture everything that I think is the good, the bad, and the, you know, whatever um, of this area because is, you know, there's been, you know, I'm not um, trying to paint this and romanticize this history at all. Um, there's, there's, you know, the fact that, you know, this land was taken, um, all of those things need to be, need to be part of this piece. So it's not going to be a romanticized kind of, you know, historic history, but it will, you know, acknowledge, you know, the, the people, the first people that were here, the, the immigrants that moved into this community and really made this city what it is. It's on their backs that this city was developed. So, so I think that is a fabulous, fabulous project that I'll be happy to write many letters of support for, but I would be remiss if we closed off this call without talking about the, um, the, uh, the mural that is now in the fire hall courtyard and where the impetus for that came from, because it's a beautiful mural that people comment all the time on and, uh, and, and that you, the project that you and Richard brought to the fire hall. Uh, so please share with us about that, the people that worked on it and uh, and what you feel it did for the community. Right, right. well, that's a, another organization that, that Richard Tatro and myself um, <laughs> have um, going, Creative Cultural Collaboration. Cultural. 
society. C3, we call it for short. I know it's a mouthful, but um, um, it's a a project-based, mostly visual arts organization. And um, we do want to, we do want to work with um, mostly, or we want to participate in community engaged activities. We saw the fire hall as kind of the nexus between the the Chinese, the Japanese and the First Nations uh, community. Um, And it's kind of sort of, you know, the the, the core that sort of, you know, Radius. Yes, the radius, the radius. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. And in fact, that's the title of the of the mural. So we had developed that that concept. And, um, and of course, we wanted to bring in, um, you know, artists from those particular communities to, um, to develop the, 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 the mural. And then part of what we do with creative cultural collaborations is that we always like to mentor because we want to build capacity. So each one of the artists that we're working with those particular um, um, communities, diverse communities, could then bring on somebody that they knew of um, that they could mentor so that they could develop some of the uh, design and um, mural painting um, skills. As you know, there were many stories that came, came out of that. Um, many things that we that we learned um, um, from participating in that project and and I love you know telling the the, the story of um, I think it was Marissa Nahani who uh, brought up um, the story about the the Vancouver fire and how um, it was the Squamish uh, nation that who were on the on the other shore across from Vancouver saw the fire and they all got in their canoes and they paddled over and they sang um and they sang their way over to the other side and they rescued the people who were on the beach who were fleeing the fire of I think it was 19 was it, uh, it was 1886 18, sorry yeah that's what I meant yeah 1886 yeah yeah and um, so there were a lot of people who were on the shoreline there, um, didn't know where to go. And, and the Squamish community came over and rescued a lot of those people and brought them back to the North Shore. And there's a lot of history like that that is hidden and hasn't been told and actually comes out through these kinds of projects. Uh, the history that has been told is very much a colonial settler history and focuses in on, you know, how people conquered and um, whatever, um, <laughs> these territories, these lands, and some of these other, you know, um, histories um, have, 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 been, have been lost. And that particular project, I think, brought to light um, some, of those, some of those stories. So we're really proud of that. And really proud of the fact that it's placed in the fire hall courtyard. Well, it, it is certainly something that when people come, they're always very curious about the translation of the language, what it means, um, mm-hmm. and also why those three uh, styles of creation are there on the, on the wall. Um, and uh, of course, we're very honored to have it there because we kind of see ourselves as sitting in the same kind of place mm-hmm. <laughs> in sort of yeah. a radius the radius of, of this community this community of the various cultures for sure so I think we have to wrap this up because I'm sure you have another zoom call coming <laughs> oh yes I do <laughs> 
at one, so, in fact. <laughs> all right. So thank you so much for joining me, Esther, on this Zoom call. I do hope I get to see you soon in person so that I can give you some kind of a, a elbow nod or whatever it is sure. we do now, a bow or a virtual, but anyway, here's a virtual hug. Uh, okay. And thanks to, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be here. And thanks to all who've joined us for a dramatic pause. We hope you enjoyed this edition and will join us again in the future. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, BC Gaming Commission and the City of Vancouver, as well as our season sponsors, the Georgia Strait and East Van Graphics, and especially our many generous individual donors. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.